John and ladies for our singing tonight. Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3. I'm uh, speaking to you these uh, Sunday evenings on the seven dispensations from the scriptures, and we come to the second one tonight called the dispensation of conscience. Basically, from the time of Adam and Eve, when they were expelled from the garden, up to the time of Noah, when God flooded the world, and that period of time we call the dispensation of conscience. And we see in Genesis 3.15, God instructing Adam and Eve and the serpent about what things will be like now. He said in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread." Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So all of your, your woes and uh, crying and aches and pains come from <laughs> this dispensation. Uh, my garden uh, still grows thistles. I don't know if it grows anything else, but it grows thistles. So uh, we know what happened because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So we're in a new dispensation because new information is being given by God. Remember that a dispensation, the word oikonomia, we get our word stewardship from that. Oikos house, namos law, so it means the rule of the household or the rule of law. And so uh, a good steward uh, is a man who took care of the rules of the household. We are stewards of God in whatever dispensation we live in. We happen to be, of course, in the age of grace. We have to be good stewards of what God has given us in this dispensation. So now he's telling Adam and Eve and, and uh, everyone else who will be born during this time, here's what I expect of you. Here's what your responsibilities will be. And now they're also facing a new world a world that is becoming disorganized, a world that is uh, not getting better and better, but getting worse and worse. Uh, the world did not start out unorganized, uh, you know, and, and uh, grow into an organization. Rather, it started out uh, without sin, and then it fell into disorganization. Now, we're at a time when things are getting worse and worse, not better and better. You know, as we traveled uh, to Chicago and back this last week, along you go along uh, I-35, I-80, and uh, you know, there's a lot of old cars sitting out in the field. You ever notice that? Uh, you know, down by the creek bed or whatever, there's some old car down there. Well, I really think that if you leave that car sitting there, it'll just turn into a brand new shiny car, right? If you leave it sitting there long enough? No. As a matter of fact, that's why they look the way they look. And the longer you leave that car sitting there, guess what? It gets rustier and rustier and disintegrates and finally goes away because that's the condition now that the world is in. 
now that sin has entered into the world, and Adam and Eve have to understand that, that that's what's going to happen. Henry Morris wrote a great uh, commentary on Genesis and himself a student of these things, uh, who, who co-authored the book, The Genesis Flood and others, said, instead of all things being made, that is, organized into complex systems as they were in creation week, they are now being unmade, becoming disorganized and simple. Instead of life and growth, there comes decay and death. Instead of evolution, there is degeneration. This, then, is the true origin of the strange law of disorder and decay, the universally applicable, all-important second law of thermodynamics. Herein is the secret of all that's wrong in the world. Man is a sinner and, God, and brought God's curse on the earth. And so we live in that time, and that's what we're reading about here in our lesson tonight. Adam and Eve... Uh, were the only people that got to live on both sides of that. They got to live in those two first genera- uh, dispensations, so they saw the world as perfect. They saw the Garden of Eden. They saw uh, and remembered a time when they walked with God in the cool of the day. Now they have to live on this side of the fall and in a world that's like ours, but even not quite as disintegrated as, as even ours is. So we call it conscience. Because from this time, from the fall of Adam and Eve to the time of Noah, they are being ruled over by their conscience and the Holy Spirit bearing on their conscience. Look at chapter 6, where we get the beginning of the story of Noah and the flood. So the the dispensation of of conscience, by the way, in your Bible then, just basically goes 3, 4, and 5. And when we get to chapter 6, as soon as the flood hits, things are going to change again. And so he says in the days of the coming flood, verse 3 of Genesis 6, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. The word strive there means to judge, to rule. So it is the rule of the Holy Spirit that has been going on from the time of the fall. And when God is going to bring the flood, he says, this will not go much longer. As a matter of fact, he tells them 120 years and this period will be ended. But during that time, from Adam and Eve up till Noah, is a time when the Holy Spirit is ruling. The Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of men. And so we call it this dispensation of conscience. So uh, in the Bible, it doesn't seem to go very long. There's a genealogy in in chapter 5. You notice those names up until that time. In Hebrews 11, where we have the Old Testament saints, we only have Abel, then Enoch, and then Noah. I mean, a very short period of time it gives us there. So, what is conscience? You remember, you remember uh, Romans 2.15, don't you, where uh, we are told there about the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature that the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. And so the law of God written in our hearts bears upon our conscience and that rule of conscience tells us what we should and shouldn't do. That's the way the world was ruled by the Holy Spirit on the conscience of men during this time. Conscience, when you think about it, made up of two words. C-O-N, con, means with, and science. 
with science or with knowledge. So if we have conscience of something, we have knowledge of something. There's something we have to know and follow, and it, it has to speak to us. So if we're conscious, if we're conscientious about something, we understand what God is doing. That's why we're called homo sapiens. We are, we are thinking human beings, and that's the way it should be. So uh, Paul says in Acts 17, in whom we live and move and have our being as your prophet, Poets have said, we also are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold, silver, or stone, graven with art of man's device. We shouldn't have to think that way. We are thinking creatures and made in God's image, which we saw last week. Okay, so in your bulletin, you have a short outline there if you want to kind of follow uh, my thoughts and what I'm saying here. Basically, you have these three things there because in every dispensation, God gives new revelation. The old is kind of done. It's been put to a stop. There's been a judgment. And now God gives new revelation that man is going to be ruled by for a period of time. Obviously, they're not going to live like they lived in the Garden of Eden. Obviously, things have changed. Sin has entered in. And so new revelation is given, and, and I list three here uh, specifically that are given. A God-given enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of, of the serpent. And then the need of blood sacrifice, which had not happened before. And then prophetic utterances that tell them things about the future. Now, this will go on like this until Noah comes along, and then God will flood the world and bring a judgment again, and then there will be new revelation to Noah, and we'll enter into another dispensation or another stewardship from God. So you see that these, steward, these dispensations are responsibilities, responsibilities for what God is telling them. They're supposed to keep these. They're supposed to do them. And if they fail, God will bring judgment upon them. Of course, what we've noticed is, and you see at the bottom of your sheet, there's always this responsibility, and then there's always a failure, and there's always a judgment to every dispensation. So first of all, in this God-given enmity, we need to understand a couple things. First of all, that there are two seeds, right? Back to chapter 3 again. And verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. There is enmity now in the world that was not there before, before the fall of Adam and Eve. This enmity is put there by God. And so there are two spiritual seeds. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, I think we understand that at this point, when he's speaking to the serpent, because notice verse 14, God said unto the serpent, so he's speaking, but he's speaking to Satan, isn't he? He's speaking to the tempter. He's speaking to the one that used this serpent for his own purpose. In other words, there's not a there's not a seed of snakes <laughs> that, that uh, we have to be careful about that, you know, we're not born from snakes or something. Uh, and this is, by the way, the serpent, as he's mentioned in verse 14. But we're talking about a spiritual seed, aren't we? Do you remember uh, Jesus saying in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. How do you become a child of the devil? Well, in a spiritual seed. 
And so uh, what we also understand clearly from Scripture is that because of Adam and Eve's sin, when you and I are born, we're born as spiritual children of Satan because of our sin. We're not born spiritual children of God. We're creatures of God. We're made by God, but we're not sons of God in any spiritual sense. Uh, also, by the way, uh, in, in 1 John, uh, look at that, if you will. If you can turn back there, I'll read it to you uh, real quickly. But in 1 John uh, chapter 3 and verse 8, John says in this writing, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. I'm in 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Either the seed of the serpent, the way you're born naturally, or you're the seed of the woman if you're born again spiritually. Verse 10 says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not doeth uh, not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And so we see that there are these, these two seeds, the seed of the serpent, but there's also the seed of the woman. And these are believers. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 4, uh, still in Genesis, I mean, chapter 4 and verse 25. Notice that after the episode with Cain and Abel, which I'll go back to in just a minute, but after that, she has another son that she names Seth, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bare a son and called his name Seth. For, God's, uh, for God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son and he called his name Enos, and notice, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so this is a believing son. Cain was not a believing son. And in 1 John 3, John goes on to say, uh, he was of that wicked one. And uh, so we have two seeds or two lines, you might say. Also, Israel uh, should be the believing seed of all the nations of the earth. Later, when, when God calls Abraham and uh, they have the children of Israel, uh, those were God's representatives on the earth also. Remember in, in uh, Revelation 12, where you have, you have the dragon, who is this serpent, and you have the woman, who is Israel, and it says the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so there's always been that enmity between the spiritual seed of Satan and the spiritual seed of God. That's why uh, Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons so that we could move from being children of Satan to being children of God. And so even in the church of Jesus Christ that we've talked about this morning, you and I who are the called according to his purpose, we have left that old family and we've become part of this new family. And this new family are those that belong to uh, the Son of God, the seed of the woman. So there are two seeds, but secondly, there is this God-given enmity 
And I say God-given because in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity. I will do this. I will, I will establish this, this war, so to speak, this battle between these two forces, the forces of Satan himself and the force of God. So we're at enmity with God as long as we belong to Satan. Isn't that interesting? I mean, uh, when we're born, uh, though we're creatures of God, though we're made in the image and likeness of God, we're spiritual children of the devil and at enmity with God until we change sides. (laughs) And when we're born again, we leave that side and go to God's side, the seed of the woman. Uh, And, uh, of course, Jesus Christ is the seed, and we are brothers and sisters with him spiritually speaking, and so we change sides. So uh, in 1 John 3, uh, I, I have it here, so let me read it. He says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. He was of that wicked one, so he killed, he killed his brother Abel. We shouldn't be of that. We should change families and be children of God. So Hebrews uh, 11, 7 By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is of faith. There is the world and there is the uh, seed of faith. So, believers, uh, we should not try to remove this enmity. And I think that's a, that, that becomes a problem uh, even in the church of Jesus Christ. Somehow we become uncomfortable with that. We're kind of tired of, of this war that's going on. We're tired of this spiritual uh, uh, war between dark and light, between the, the forces of God and the forces of Satan. And so what we try to do is we try to make the peace. We try to bring the hands together, and we can't do that. God will do that in the restitution of all things. As a matter of fact, it's called the offense of the cross. And we can't take away that offense of the cross. It, it uh, offends the lost for us to talk about being children of God and the fact that they need to be children of God. If you ever tell a sinner that uh, Satan is his father, it's not the way to win friends and influence people. I mean, people don't like to hear that kind of thing. But we're kind of too often in the business of saying, well, let's try to get along with the world by taking this enmity away. We can't take it away. It was there in the beginning, established by God, and it will always be there Uh, And it's just the way it is. So Peter uh, uh, puts it this way uh, in his book. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And so expect it, folks. There's this enmity, and it was placed there at the beginning uh, in this new dispensation of conscience. So we have these two seeds in this God-given enmity uh, that we see first. Secondly, we also see that God uh, reveals to Adam and Eve the need of blood sacrifice, the need of a substitution for their sin. And we see it 
in first the killing of the animal to make the animal skins, and secondly, in the blood of Abel. Look at chapter 3, verse 21, still in Genesis. And I'll back up to verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And then you remember that later uh, he also will instruct Abel and Cain to bring a sacrifice, which meant the shedding of blood. And Abel's sacrifice, of course, was accepted because he killed an animal to bring that, that uh, blood sacrifice. Cain did not, and so his sacrifice was not accepted. Well, conscience is already working because they attempted... In this chapter, chapter uh, 3 and verse 7, they attempted to cover themselves, right? They, they attempted to say, oh, uh, we, we better go do something about our current condition. And uh, so they uh, covered themselves with leaves and things like that. And why did they do that? Remember, God came and uh, they said, what have you done? And we hid because we knew we were naked. And God said, who told you that you were? Who told you that you were naked? So they have a conscience now, and that conscience is condemning them for their sin. And they're trying to take care of it, but they're taking care of it the wrong way, and God says, no, here's the way you need to take care of it. I would like to go down that rabbit trail of talking about uh, why God, in looking at our bodies, wants us to be covered and not naked uh, and it goes back to this very first thing, and we've always struggled with that, haven't we? We've always, uh, rather than respecting what God has said here, we try to uncover ourselves again and again, and God always calls it nakedness, and nakedness is always called a sin. Well, uh, in this first, uh, it's because they had a conscience of their sin. Well, also, they witnessed death and blood here, didn't they? When he... When he uh, took the coats of skins in verse 21 and made clothing out of them. For the first time, Adam and Eve see the death of a fellow creature, an animal, not made in the image and likeness of God, but a living creature, more than just the leaf on a tree. Something had to die. And since Death meant the shedding of blood. When you take the blood out of an animal, that animal is going to die. They see this process before them. They see it happening, and they're wondering, why this? Well, God is beginning something, of course, that's going to continue for ages, and that is to cover sin, blood must be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so they see that for the first time and witness it. And... The fact that they are covered suggests a need for atonement, a need for something to cover your sins. And you know what? When we get to up to chapter 6 and 7, where God is instructing Noah, remember that he says, take two uh, of each kind, a male and a female of all the animals, but of the clean animals, how many are they supposed to take? Seven they're supposed to take. Why is that? No doubt one of the reasons for that. Uh, was to be able to make blood sacrifices after the flood so that they could take animals that were acceptable for sacrifice and use them uh, as sacrificial animals. So all of this begins now, this need for sacrifice. But there's an interesting uh, part, of course, in chapter 4 
where we have uh, Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, nothing wrong with either of those professions, and there wasn't then and there, wasn't, there isn't now, uh, but God is going to instruct them. So it says, in the process of time, it came to pass that, that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Now, why is that? Because God had instructed them how you come and atone for sin. When you bring a sacrifice to atone for sin, it has to be by blood. That has to be shed, life for life. And so, though there's nothing wrong with being a gardener, nothing wrong with being a farmer, nothing wrong with growing things out of the ground, in other words, I, I think it's a, it's a holy profession, but you don't attend for sins that way. They t attend for sins by the death of an animal. Let's read on a little bit. So, Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? Notice, if thou doest well, thou shalt, uh, shalt thou not be accepted. In other words, there's still time. You can still go do it. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. That could mean the sin offering is right there. Go get him and offer him. Do the right thing. Isn't that always true that when... Uh, we try to approach God in some other way. We try to come to God by our own works, by our own inventions, and by the way we think God should accept us. And God always says, no, the right way is right here. Just do the right thing. And here it is. So conscience is telling them, him this. Now, there's an interesting statement after that. Unto these shall his desire shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. I think the New King James has it better with the word it rather than him when it says, and unto thee shall its desire be, thou shalt rule over it. Sin, that is, that lies at the door. What does that mean? There's only one other place in all of Scripture where you have that kind of expression where something has a desire and yet it rules over you, and it's back in uh, the third chapter, in chapter 3 and verse 16. Again, the woman said, I will great, uh, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Thy desire, here are the same two verbs, thy desire shall be to thy husband. Now what that means literally is, her desire will be to rule her husband. Thy desire shall be over thy husband. And he shall yet rule over thee, probably in an unjust way. She wants it her way. He wants it his way. The beginning of the breakdown of the family. See, when God created Adam and Eve and brought them together and she was a helpmeet for him and this was the way the family was supposed to be, uh, it was all great. But when sin entered into the world, now she wants to be the head of the family. She wants to rule over the family. And he too often wants to uh, be oppressive toward her. And that's, that's the struggle in families and has been ever since. And so the destruction of the family began at that time. 
Paul brings it up in Ephesians and other places and says how great it is when the husband is in the right place and the wife is in the right place, both serving God, understanding uh, how God made you and why God made you. It's a wonderful thing, but sin has ruined it all and still does to this day. And we all struggle with, with these kinds of struggles in marriages and more uh, because we want to have that uh, our way and we don't always get it our way. Now go back to chapter 4 and verse 7 and apply the same thing to you and sin. Sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall, it, shall be its desire. Sin wants to control you, and thou shalt rule over it. You try to rule over sin. And that becomes the struggle of a lifetime. That becomes the struggle of all generations. The same two verbs used here, the word desire and the word rule. And so sin wants to rule over you, folks. I'll tell you that. Sin has a grasp on you. Sin has an anchor with you. And sin is always pulling you back into the world and back into your old life. It wants to rule over you. And until we are resurrected and in our new bodies, uh, we are trying as hard as we can to rule over it, but not being very successful. So you see the breakdown of the family on the one hand in this same process, and you see the breakdown of Christian living in the same way. Adam and Eve are going to have to struggle with this now uh, because uh, they live in a new dispensation. The only, the only remedy for both is a blood sacrifice. The only remedy for this kind of sin is the blood that has to be shed, and God showed them that. So we see a God-given enmity that exists in the world still today. We see a need for blood sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. We haven't said enough there, of course. The, the scriptures are full of the whole subject of blood atonement, but we've just shown these early pictures of it. And then thirdly, God gives certain prophecies at this time to show that a final restitution is coming. In all of the dispensations, God reassures his people and reassures his believers that he's going to take care of all of this. I know you struggle in these ways. I know that the world is a tough place. I know that, that uh, we are in a battleground, not a playground. I know that that's true. But I'm telling you, in the end, I will take care of it. When Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he says of Jesus being ascended back to the heaven, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. <laughs> It's just the way it has to be until the restitution of all things. But God's going to bring that. So, again, chapter 3, verse 15, theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And we see it here, and we always refer back to it, this first prophecy given in Scripture, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. We might see here thy seed as Satan himself and eventually his Antichrist, but her seed is Jesus Christ himself. Galatians 3 uh, makes this clear. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. It shall bruise thy head, even though thou shalt bruise his heel. And no, it seems to me, no doubt, this is a reference, of course, to the cross of Calvary, when on the cross, Satan thought he had the seed of the woman finally snuffed out. 
He had him killed on the cross, bruised his heel, so to speak, but couldn't end his life, couldn't have final victory. But one day, the Son of God, because he's resurrected from the dead, he's claimed victory over the serpent, and one day that serpent's head will be cut off. What do you do with the snake when you want to kill it? You cut its head off. And he will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And so even though Satan has a short victory over Christ on the cross, Christ will have eternal victory over him. That's the first prophecy. We know that, and it's, and it's given in this way uh, many times throughout Scripture. But in Jude, when we... we uh, I, I preached through Jude on Sunday nights just before this, if you remember. And in Jude... Uh, we are given this prophecy of Enoch. Now, you see here in, in chapter 5 and verse, uh, chapter 5 is the genealogy of people that lived in this dispensation of conscience. And in chapter 5, verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. All right, you know the story of Enoch. Well, Jude, in that little book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, gives us, through inspiration of the Spirit, something that, that Enoch prophesied. Remember that? This would have been during the dispensation of conscience. Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Of these saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Well, again, what is Enoch telling the people in that dispensation? There's a way out of this mess. Even though we've fallen into this sin and the world has become what it is, eventually God will be the victor. Eventually the Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints and put an end to this problem. He goes on and says to execute judgment upon all to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so we have two prophecies that we know of given during the dispensation of conscience, one by God himself in Genesis 3.15 and the other by Enoch, though we have to go clear to the book of Jude to see exactly what it is. Uh, and we see the life of Enoch uh, during this time. Let me ask you this. These, these people that live back here were saved by faith, right? Because Hebrews 11 makes it clear that even Abel was saved by faith, and Enoch was saved by faith, and then Noah will be saved by faith. We know that no one is saved and has eternal life without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection being applied to that person's sin. So did Abel and Enoch. Were they able to look forward and see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and believe in it? <laughs> this is kind of an interesting question that uh, those of us who are dispensationalists kind of wrestle with. How clearly could Old Testament saints really look forward and see all of that? Could Abel really see the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He was saved by faith, and faith has to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. How could that happen? Well, usually here's the way it's presented, and I think this is a good way. And that is, you, all that Abel could see was what God had commanded him to do. All that Enoch could do was walk with God. 
In every dispensation, God gives new information, and if you have faith, you will follow that new information. Paul's famous, uh, his favorite verse about Abraham is what? He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God's promises about him. But look at it this way. Though you and I always look back to God and say, Father, what is it I should be doing? What is it I should believe? He tells us we believe it. But God in heaven sees all of time all at once. And he sees the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ even way back there. To him, he's a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so to God, Jesus Christ is always crucified for the sinner. God looks forward, and on the basis of what Jesus Christ is going to do, saves that person because of his faith. Even though those early believers may not be able to see clearly like you and I can see, but whatever God told them, they said, you are God, I'm a sinner, I'll believe whatever you tell me, and so it's attributed to him for righteousness. Now, here's the thing, folks. You and I that live on this side of the cross, we look back 2,000 years to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. And so today, the commandment of God, the new revelation from God is, you look back to that cross and understand that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, that he rose again, and you believe it and apply that to yourself, and then that faith will save you. And so we're, we're in a great uh, position today to be able to look back, to be able to look back 2,000 years to that historical fact, be sure of it, know it as a fact, and believe in it. Whereas even these uh, believers way back then kind of saw it way ahead. As a matter of fact, uh, turn with me real quickly to Hebrews chapter 11, where these uh, great Old Testament people were said to have faith. And look at chapter 11, verse 13. Of all of these men, including Abel and Enoch and many others here, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, kind of a cloudy, misty way, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And in verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, whereof God is not ashamed to be called their God. And so these Old Testament believers had to look forward to this time and see it. So what I'm saying is the prophecies here, thirdly, in our lesson, were of the future. And God always assures people in every dispensation, I'll take care of the problem here. You be faithful to me. You do what I'm asking you to do, and I will take care of the future. And that's always true. I put in there three words, a test, a failure, and a judgment, because this is always true. Then what, what is the test? Well, the test is this Holy Spirit striving this Holy Spirit ruling upon your conscience. Will you bring a blood sacrifice? Will you believe these prophecies? Will you live as I have commanded you to live in this dispensation? And there's a failure. Look at chapter 6 and verse 5. 
God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what happened to his conscience? It was seared. They didn't follow God. And by the time the Noah comes around in, in those few hundred years that have happened during that time, then everything about their conscience was evil continually, dreaming up evil things to do. And so they could not live by their conscience, and God is going to judge them. And the judgment then, of course, is the flood itself. And in verse 6 of chapter 6, it says, It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And I love that next verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We'll talk about that next time when we talk about that dispensation. He found grace during this time, which is always there and always saving grace uh, for you if you'll believe God in any dispensation. I could have also added to our lesson here the, the two continuing principles. And that is that God, when he establishes these things in different dispensations, sometimes he continues things and sometimes he cuts things off. For example, Sabbath keeping started for the Israelites under the law and then was ended when the law ended. And yet, uh, under human government, we, we have uh, uh, the, the government putting people to death, capital punishment, and it continues after that and continues even today. So some things continue, some things stop in a particular dispensation. One is the rule of God. God still rules in our conscience. And even though we have further revelation, uh, we still have a conscience, don't we? And that conscience uh, still is, is brought to bear by God. We read it in Romans chapter 2. The second one is fellowship with God. Uh, God wants to have fellowship with us. And we want to have fellowship with God. But the only way to have fellowship with God is through the shedding of blood. And now we know in our dispensation where we know so much in the dispensation of grace that that has to be not through the shedding of animal blood, but through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And by that, we can have fellowship with God. And we should have. In the, in the dispensation of innocence that Adam and Eve lived in, faith was the overcoming of the unknown, but in conscience, it's the overcoming of what is known, and that is sin itself. So, we're in a battleground. I, I'm reading a, an old book by A.W. Tozer titled, uh, Battleground, Not Playground. <laughs> Because uh, too often we've, we've looked at the world as some kind of a playground that we're on just to have a jolly good time while we live here. But even we see here in this enmity that God put in this world, this is a battleground. We have an armor of God to put on. Uh, we have a battle to fight. We do it rightly. We do it as Christians. We do it a as uh, people of God. Uh, but our warfare is not carnal, but mighty through God, the pulling down of strongholds and so forth. So we have that. We're in that spiritual battle. So only when the heart turns to Christ can that battle be won. Only when that person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and that conscience is made clear and that soul is cleansed by blood again, by the blood offering of Jesus Christ, can 
uh, we truly walk with God and have fellowship with him. I hope that you understand that. I hope that, that uh, you learn that from this early dispensation, this short dispensation. We'll go to one much larger, and that is the dispensation of human government. Uh, with the flood of Noah and what happened after that. We'll talk about that next Sunday night. Stand with me, if you will. Let's go to him in prayer before we sing a song uh, together tonight. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Father, that even when we look back into these early ages where we have to look uh, so far back and it's cloudy even to us, but you've given us information that we need to know. We thank you, Father, for faith. We thank you for blood that is shed for the atonement of our sins. We thank you for conscience, that through it you convicted us of sin. Through it you showed us our need of a Savior, and we saw that need and came to you. Thank you, Father, for teaching us those things. May we continue to have fellowship with you. May we continue, Father, to live uh, by faith and not by sight. Help us to walk wisely in this world. We know it's a battleground, and yet, Father, we love the people of this world that need to be saved. We have a message that they need to hear. Help us to be good communicators of that message. Uh, burden our hearts for them and help us, Father, to be uh, uh, more knowledgeable of your word, to be able to answer questions that we need to answer and to give the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we think about these things and sing this song. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John, come